All right, open up your Bibles to Second Samuel, chapter seven. Everything okay? Yeah. Right. Oh man. Would you would you go to a baseball game without a glove? Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that was confusing. All right, open up your Bibles to the Old Testament, Second Samuel, chapter seven. Hello, Evelyn. Good to see you. All right, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to open up your word. We pray that you would um, build in our hearts an eagerness for your coming kingdom, um, and, and as a result of that eagerness, that we would. Um, become more and more um, the, the image bearers, uh, the citizens that you intend us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read um, the passage we're going to be kind of using today to jump off from. It is 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, and we're going to read half of it. This is a familiar chapter, but I want you to look at all of the promises that God makes to David in this chapter as we read it. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the peoples of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I 
took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So I need to ask a question here, a very important question before we begin to, to help us absolutely understand the significance of what's going on here. This is a huge, significant, massive question which will determine how well you understand this pas- passage. How many of you are Lord of the Rings fans? Anyway, the biggest Lord of the Rings fan, right here. We got the biggest one. How many of you are Marvel fans? Any Marvel fans? Uh, you're a little bit more ashamed of yourselves. Your, your hands are not so high because you know uh, it's kind of sketchy these days. How many of you are DC fans? Heaven forbid, DC fans. Who's a DC? Fan? Oh, very ashamed. Very ashamed. Very ashamed. DC. How many? Do we have any Star Wars fans here? Star Wars. Okay. They're a little bit more. A little bit more proud. A little bit uncertain these days because Star Wars is kind of in unrest a little bit. Um, so here's a question for you. All of these movies, or all of these, I, I guess, uh, what, do they, what do they call them? Franchises. Franchises, that's the word I'm thinking of. All of these franchises have one thing in common. They have made a lot of movies, right? Right? They, just, they just keep cranking those movies out, right? How many Batmans are we on now? Four. How many Spider-Mans are we on now? Is this the third Spider-Man? Seven. Seven Spider-Mans? Yeah. Yeah, technically, you could go way back, right? Into those cartoon days, I suppose. Yeah. How many Lord of the Rings movies? I mean, including the... It's just like... It's getting out of control now, right? Yeah. How many... I don't even want to think about how many Star Wars because I break into tears with how great Empire Strikes Back is. Every time I think about Star Wars, just just, just swallow it up. Right? They, They make a lot of movies. Why do they make so many movies? There's... There's the... Cynical answer. <laughs> yes, uh, CJ? Money. Money. What did you say? You're, you're going to go money? Money? That's, that's the true answer, right? How much more can we make out of this? Hey, we're th- uh, you know, the, the writer comes to the producer. Hey, we're thinking about making another movie. Oh, really? What kind of movie? Well, it's going to be a Star Wars movie. I don't care. Just, just write any story you want. I don't care. Just throw it up there. People will buy it, right? That's kind of the idea. Money. They're after money. But what about a more sophisticated answer? Why do we like... Why did they make so many movies? Why do we like seeing so many movies? Yes? Not that we like seeing them, but they're pushing ideology. <laughs> they, they're pushing an ideology. Okay. Well, see, once again, there's an there's a interesting worldview you got. Yes? Taking advantage of nostalgia. Taking <laughs> advantage. You guys have a very cynical view of franchises, right? Okay, so I'm going to try to help you understand the... the just. I'm going to try to bring you back to your childhood a little bit. I know you're all children, but really you, you are all getting old and cynical now in your old age. <laughs> they make so many movies. Because we love watching these movies, and of course they can make money off of what we love to watch, but they make so many movies because we just love to see these storylines played again and again, and we love to see the worlds that we love deepen, don't we? We love to understand, but what about that character? I mean, sometimes we don't really care about that character, but somebody does, and and somebody out there is like, man, I really want to know the backstory of that particular character. Or what would happen if all the characters from all the different movies came together in a multiverse? What would that be like? We're just interested in all of these different ideas, all these storylines. We want to see the storylines deepen. We like seeing pieces of the puzzle come together. As we, as we know more of the story, the big story connects, right? 
as, as I understand all of the movies and I, I kind of see the bigger picture. But it's all really making one big picture. It's not just individual movies, is it? it it's one big, huge, glorious storyline that sometimes doesn't totally make sense with itself. But I'm not complaining. I'm not cynical at all. This is your childhood, remember? <laughs> Ever wonder, in the same way, why the Bible has so many books in it? And, and why some of these books seem to repeat themselves. Like, do you ever notice, do you ever read through the Bible, and you get through Exodus, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, and then you, you kind of slug it out through Leviticus, and Numbers is kind of interesting, it's kind of sad, but kind of interesting, but then you get to Deuteronomy, and you're like, this seems very redundant, right? Or, or better yet, have you ever been to, like, the Psalms, and you're like, man, I feel like... I feel like I've read this before. It's like it's repeating itself again and again. Or, or one of the most curious things in the Bible that I like to read through is, is Kings and Chronicles. They, they tell seemingly the same story. Why, why does the Bible repeat itself often? And, and actually, if you go into Jeremiah, the, the prophet, if you go into Isaiah, you see Jeremiah and Isaiah sometimes repeat stories right from Kings. Like uh, the Sennacherib army invading Israel and surrounding Jerusalem. That's in Isaiah. Uh, the fall of Jerusalem is not only in First Kings and First Chronicles, it's also twice in Jeremiah. Why do we see this repetition going through the Bible? Or how about this? How come there are so many epistles? Don't you think... The Spirit of God could have just inspired one epistle and just covered everything, right? Why are there so many epistles? Or... Or like we're going to talk about today, why are there? What are there? What does there need to be four different gospels that seem to tell me the same thing? You ever wonder that? Why? Why are there four gospels? Well, let me submit to you that it's not because there's four different multiverse Jesuses that we never see together until someday they try to do that, right? It's, it's not that we're seeing a different Jesus here and a different Jesus there and a different Jesus there and a different Jesus there. They're all, they're all looking at the same Jesus. And I would say the Bible repeats itself, and particularly the, the Gospels come in, in a group of four because the 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 amazing character of the central figure is so amazing. He requires four different pictures of him because we just want to get our minds and our hearts around him so much, right? You ever have a favorite character? You want to see that character again and again and again. You want to understand him or her from different angles. You, you love spinoff series, right? That's why we have the Gospels. It, it approaches the person of Jesus from a different angle and makes an argument it makes an argument for a specific thing that Jesus is to you and to the world. It's very much like the Psalms, actually, right? The, the main character is so fascinating. In the Psalms, we see these Psalms kind of seem to repeat each other and go on a little bit because the main character, God, is so wonderful. He needs to be explored and experienced in all the different experiences of life. We, we, that's what the Psalms are there for. This is, this is who God is in this situation. This is who God is in, in, in these feelings and these doubts and these worries. That's why the Psalms are so plentiful to us. Or, or it's very much like the epistles. There is, it's such a huge and fascinating time in world history that we want to get as much detail about it as possible. And there's very valuable instruction from the Spirit of God in all of those epistles given to all of us. And it's very much, uh, the reason we have these four Gospels is very much for the same reason we've got Kings and Chronicles seem to repeat, repeat themselves. It's, it's the same story 
the same history being approached from a, a different angle. And there's a different argument being made in all of those books. Now, I would make an argument to you that you need to know the Jesus that's presented to you in these four Gospels. You need to know the, the various ways Jesus uh, is presented. You need to know who Jesus is in all four of these ways. They're, they're not just a scattered gathering of stories. They're not just like, well, what's a fun story of Jesus? Let's throw that on. There, there's, there's a specific, uh, a very highly selected uh, group of stories that's making a certain argument about who Jesus is. And it's, and, and it's made to us four times, once again, because the main character, Jesus, is so significant, so fascinating. So let me just go through it real quick. Let me just show you the different arguments that every gospel is making, and then we'll get into the gospel I want to talk about today. Number one, you see Mark. Mark is telling you that Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. You you wonder why Mark has so much action in it, so little speaking in it. It's because Mark is out there to show you, look at what Jesus does. He is not someone who is coming to be served, but he is coming to serve. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, and it's a glorious picture, an exciting picture of Jesus. Luke, we learned about last summer, presents Jesus as the perfect man. The perfect man, the, the, the answer to all the world's needs, sufficient for all of your problems. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. John presents Jesus as God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the unseen one God himself. And today I want you to think about the message, the argument that Matthew presents. Matthew argues that Jesus is the long-expected king. Jesus is the king. Matter of fact, the, the climax of Matthew's argument is this. He uses these words, and he says it very clearly. For the first time in the whole gospel, he finally clearly states his argument that he's been making the whole time. He says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's Matthew's argument. He is the King of the Jews. Now, this is a title of great, great expectancy. If you are a Jew and you hear that this finally is the long-expected King that you've been waiting for, this is great news to you. And that's why... It's curious in Matthew, the the place that this statement comes is a little bit odd and a little bit surprising where Matthew makes this statement. But that's, that's, that's Matthew's point, to show Jesus as the long-expected king. I want, to do, I want to do kind of three things, but really I want to do two things today. First off, see, look at that. Wasn't that cool? In, instead of saying three, I really want to do four, I said three, I really want to do two. Wasn't that like refreshing to you? Like, man... <laughs> David knows how to cut stuff, right? That's great. That's great. This week, this week, this week, I want you to really get your minds around what it is like to be someone who knows the Bible and hear the words, this is the king of the Jews. I want you to kind of realize what that would mean to someone like a Jew who knew their Bible. Oh, this, this, this is the king of the Jews. That's great news. 
And, and the reason for that is because next week, this is the thing I'm not going to do, next week I'm going to actually present kind of the message of Matthew, the argument that Matthew is going to make. And also next week as well, Pastor Steve is going to be starting his series in Matthew. And I really want to get you guys excited, revved up, start thinking already for that. And then finally, I want to give you a great way this week you can prepare yourself for this big series that our church is going to be going through in the Gospel of Matthew. So really, all I'm doing today is trying to get you excited for what Pastor Steve is going to be talking about next week. I want to get you kind of into the minds and hearts of a Jew hearing the news, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And and this is why I want you to start out and see this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. The good news of Jesus, according to Matthew, is all tied up in all of these promises that God makes to David. You may have heard about this. It's called a covenant in the Bible. It's the Davidic covenant. It, of course, is set up during the reign of David when he is experiencing rest and peace all around him. You saw that there in the first couple verses of this chapter. Um, This is kind of an unprecedented peace, really, if you've been reading in biblical history up to this point. Even in the days of Joshua, there was still fighting and wars, but now the time of the judges has ended, the time of Saul has ended, where there was fighting all of his life, and now David has come, and finally rest has come to the people of God. And of course, as you you heard in this chapter, right, David gets this idea, hey, this might be a great time to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says, no. But I'll switch it on you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you promises. I'm going to advance my kingdom redemptive purposes through your line. And this is where the kingdom promise or the king promises of the Bible really kind of take 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 grip in the biblical story in the biblical picture. Now, now all of all of the Bible is held together by biblical covenants. Just real quick, what is a covenant? A covenant is the vehicle through which God is pursuing his full kingdom redemptive purposes and plans. If if you don't know about covenants in the Bible, the Old Testament will be a little confusing perhaps. But God reveals his plan and it's, and it's a whole picture God is revealing in little bitty steps through covenant after covenant after covenant. It's like, it's like pieces of a puzzle. As each covenant comes into play, you understand a little bit more of what the big picture is going to look like when, when God's perfect plan comes. Right? It's like, it's like that little knob that you turn on your binoculars as you're trying to bring the picture that's far away into focus. With every turn of the knob, with every covenant that comes, the picture becomes clearer. Now, it's not telling you all sorts of different pictures. It's showing you one big picture, but it's giving you more focus on what the, the kingdom of God is going to look like when it comes. It's one big plan, one big purpose. Now, I have a slide here that may be slightly helpful to you. We'll see. Um, if Meg goes to the next one, I'm just going to quickly give you one word for every single covenant in the Bible. So I'm, I'm trying to hold myself to one word to really help you latch on. 
this helps me when I'm reading through the Bible to just remember, oh, that's what that covenant is, that's what that covenant is, and it kind of helps me read the Bible as a whole and understand these pieces, these big pieces, or, or, or continue to turn that knob so the kingdom of God comes into more focus. So the the covenants, first off, first off, let me just say this before Meg does that first one. Ah, shoot. Uh, that's all right, Meg, you're fine. All right. Um, the promises of God... The promises of God have been from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning. Genesis 3, God has made promises of a snake crusher coming who will restore God's original created purpose, right? So from the very beginning, God's promises have been very focused on a man who's going to come and is going to be the offspring of Adam and Eve. So, so from the very beginning, mankind, history of mankind has been looking forward to when is this, when is this one going to come? When is this one going to come? But the first covenant we see is the Noahic covenant. The Noahic. This is the covenant that God kind of gave to Noah in, in Genesis you know, 6 through 9. You see that with the flood and all that. Um, I would say the word I use to describe this covenant is stabilization. God promises to stabilize this world, to not totally destroy this world when sin rips through this world in order for his kingdom program to, to come to fruition. So God is saying, I'm not going to wipe out this world again. I am going to, I'm going to pursue my redemptive purposes on this world, and I'm going to preserve it through, through, through the flood and other things. And then we have the next covenant, Abe's covenant. I like to think of this as the nation covenant. Of course, as nations begin to grow on the earth, we see families spread and they become into nations. And and of course, God picks one of these families to become his nation. And actually, this covenant, you see all of the covenants of God kind of unfold in Genesis 12. You, you, see, you see a kingdom, you see a blessing to all the world in Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And then in the, uh, I think we've got the Mosaic next, right? And number three, the Moses' covenant is a conditional covenant, a conditional covenant for this nation to, to hold on to the, the blessings of God. But, of course, Israel would not be able to do it because their hearts were sour towards God. And then, of course, God continues to move his kingdom program forward despite his people's sin in the Davidic covenant or David's covenant. This is, the word is king, this is a promise that not only will this be the nation through which I bless this world, but I'm also going to do it through a specific king, a line, the line of David, and the king that will come from him. That is how I'm going to restore my kingdom program, or bring about my kingdom program. And then, of course, we've got the new covenant. We see this promised all the way back in Deuteronomy, but really spoken of clearly in Jeremiah. And then in the New Testament, we see this in Hebrews as well. The new covenant is all about the heart. It's all about the citizen. Who are the people that are going to be in the kingdom of this king? And the Mosaic covenant has already proven that nobody has the heart to be in this covenant. We're all too weak. But then the new covenant promises to remove our sin and change our heart from within. And that's what we're seeing even now, already beginning. Even though we're not in the the kingdom of Jesus on this earth, we're already seeing the blessings of the new covenant in this world. So that's kind of an overview of the biblical covenants. But let's get back to the the driving question of this message. What would it be like to be a Jew and hear the words, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
we should hear that with joy. And I'm going to give you just a few reasons from the Davidic covenant for why this news, this argument is good news for the Jew. But I also want to say it's also something you should be eager about as well. You should be excited about as well. So that's how we're going to cover it. So we're going to, we're going to just kind of like, just kind of go through Second Samuel and say what, some high points, high points of the Davidic covenant that produce an eager expectation in you for the coming king. This is just a few high points from the Davidic covenant. Number one, ooh, that was slick. Who made this slideshow? Give them a raise. Uh, <laughs> There you go. Uh, Number one, when you hear the king of the Jews, you should hear no more names. No more names. I promise this will make sense. Um, Let me just say it this way. God promised... God promised to, his his promise to David was that, hey, through your name, through your house, through your dynasty, I am going to move. I'm going to pursue my kingdom program. Now, before David, there were all sorts of names. You remember the days of Judges? There were all these names of leaders who were weak and failures. Before David, there was Saul, the king that the people wanted. But he was also a failure. He had no heart for God. But when David came, we saw a man after God's own heart. We saw saw the model of a king, someone that we could love, root for, cheer for. But even in David, we saw a weakness, right? And even in the sons that bared David's name, we saw weakness in all of their efforts. Some were wicked. But God's light still did not go out on his promises to David because he is a God that makes unconditional promises. Some were, some were pretty great. Some were like Hezekiah or Joshua, but still they weren't that great. They all end in failure in some way. Matter of fact, if you read Chronicles, it really comes out more that their, their, their driving sin continued to be pride and not humility. But the promise that God makes to David is, hey, I am going to build you a house. And and ultimately, God is going to be faithful to David's house. And ultimately, we have the hope in the Davidic covenant that there's going to be a king that's coming that will be the best one. That'll be, that'll be the one that all the other ones were kind of pictures of, dim pictures of, right? There will be a king like David who is coming, who will have all the good parts of David and even more, and none of the bad parts. I know, I know, a story, a movie, has to have some sort of weakness in its leading character, otherwise they're not interesting. But don't you always wish, kind of, that you'd encounter a character that was perfect, that would never stumble or fail? I kind of long for that, every story I see. And as I read through the Old Testament, as I read through 1 Samuel, as I read through 2 Samuel, as I read through Kings, as I read through Chronicles, in my heart there's always this feeling, I wish there was a perfect man who could come. And that's what the Davidic covenant is promising. Hey, I am going to raise up your offspring after you. I'm going to give you a great name. And the reason I'm going to give you a great name, and the name David is going to be eternal instead of temporary, is not because you're going to have a bunch of sons that are going to sit on your throne after you. That's kind of why. But the real reason you're going to have a great name is because there's going to be one son. There's going to be a better David. A final David is going to come, and there's going to be no more expectation. You're going to know him, and you're going to rejoice that he has come. There's going to be no more names. No more waiting for the Messiah to come. He has come. 
the best David, the final David, has come. That should bring joy to your heart. No more weakness. No more failure. I can trust him completely in everything that he does. In every rule that he makes, I can trust him completely. No more names. Right? You can be eager about that. You can get excited about that, right? A king that is trustworthy, that always does what is right. The perfect hero. Or how about this one? Another high point that we see in the Davidic covenant that gets us eager for the Jesus that we see in Matthew. No more motels. Now, let me just be very clear. Very clear. There were no motels in David's time. I just want you to make I just want to make sure you all know that I am not an idiot. But this next this next promise that God makes reminds me of life and an existence in a motel. The people of Israel were wandering. Finally, here in 2 Samuel, they were kind of in a place and they had peace and they had rest, but we all know the story. They're going to be uprooted from Israel. They're going to be taken off in exile, and even when they come back, it's not going to be that great as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And even by the time of, of Jesus actually coming to earth, they were, they were under the tyranny of Rome. They were living still a wandering existence. But the promise that God gives to David, verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people. This is through the Davidic covenant. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Look at the, the powerful picture of peace there. And this is actually a picture of a, of a plant being transplanted from a place of insecurity out there in the forest or in the field or in the desert to being in in the garden, right next to the garden, gardener's house being cared for every single day, being nourished and cherished. This is what God's going to do in the Davidic covenant. He's going to take his people and he's going to plant them in the, the land that they've been promised and they will no longer be disturbed. They will no longer have this wandering nomadic existence because they will be fixed in their own land. Now that's, a, that's actually a promise that I could see a Jew getting really excited about, but I also think we could get very excited about too. Think about the implications of that, because that's going to be in Israel. If Israel is experiencing that kind of peace, and that is, that is the hotbed of all the activity of the world, what will the rest of the world look like if Israel is planted and firm and fixed? There will be worldwide peace because Israel will have a place. Or another high point here that gets us excited about the Jesus we meet in Matthew. There will, uh, to hear the name King of the Jews means you hear no more wars. No more wars. And this is similar to the, the second point, but there is a distinction here that I want to make. No more wars. Verse 11, you see this. The better David would do much more than even the, the good David could do. Even, even at this time in David's life, remember, there was no wars around him. There was, there was rest. God had given him rest, it says in verse 10. But God promises this in verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. All the violent men will be gone. All the violent men, all those who oppose um, God's purposes will be removed. And this will be the exact opposite of the days of the judges. This will be the exact opposite. In the days of the judges, Israel was being invaded all over the place, but finally there will be no more wars. Now, now, now I can even get excited about that, right? 
I can get excited about a king who will bring lasting peace to the world. There will be no more violent men on earth anywhere. Anywhere. I can get excited about that. Can't you? He will be called the Prince of Peace. He will make wars to cease. Zechariah 14 tells us he will finally bring righteousness and justice. Isaiah 9 tells us that's something that I can get excited about, that I can be eager about. Man, I can't wait for King Jesus to come because that's what it means. Or how about another high point that gets us excited about the Gospel of Matthew and the message it presents? It presents no more restlessness. When you hear King of the Jews, it means no more restlessness. And of course, this is right there in verse 11. We just saw this. I will give you rest. Now, we already talked about no more wars, but the the idea of rest is actually a very rich Old Testament picture of lots of different things that we should understand. And, and once again, remember what a covenant is. A, a covenant is moving along. The program is, is, showing you, is showing you another piece in the puzzle of the big picture. They're all kind of connected together. You see them working in each other. You see language that's repeated from covenant to covenant. But, but rest here really does link with the rest uh, that we've seen already Um, in previous covenants. But let's just talk a little bit about um, what rest means with this king. It, of course, means political rest. There will be a uh, worldwide rest from war and dissension and disagreement. It doesn't mean there there won't be necessarily during the, the, the kingdom, but they will be dealt with quickly in righteousness and justice. There will also be another facet of rest. It will be like an agricultural rest as well. There will be personal and national prosperity. The, the, the kingdom of Christ is, remember, hinted at and, and kind of shown to you in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a foggy, kind of dim picture, even in the Old Testament kingdom of David and of Solomon. And, and one of the pictures of Solomon that we see is that yeah, everybody sat under their own vine, which maybe to you doesn't sound so great. You're trying to cut away vines in your backyard. doesn't sound so good to sit under your own vine. But this was actually a symbol of rest and a symbol of prosperity. The, the people of Israel, even during Solomon's day, which once again is a pointer to the, the better David to come, were as the sands of the sea. Uh, the land of Israel, even during Solomon's day, was much broader than it ever was before that. But even uh, the better David, the final David's land, will be even broader than that. It'll be a, it'll be a day of agricultural rest. It'll also be, this is a really good one, a, a day of physical rest. Do you realize when Jesus is king, it'll be just like Jesus uh, when he was first here on the earth, except even better, it will be a time of no disease. It'll be a time of no plagues. It'll be a time of no hunger. It'll be a time of no pain. If you are in Jesus' kingdom, that will be your rest. No more trouble. No more toil. Matter of fact, this is, this is something you even begin to see in the days of Noah. When Noah was born, his father was like, finally, the one who, who will bring us rest from all of our labors, all of our toils. Do you see that? In the promise of the Messiah, there was this idea, he is going to remove the curse and all of the consequences that come in my life because of the curse. There's going to be no more restlessness, but also... This, this is the foundation of them all. It, it, it's going to be a time of spiritual rest. Spiritual rest. There's no longer going to be this distance from God. 
And we already have begun to experience this, spiritual rest between us and God. But it will be a time when God is among us, when our sins are taken away from us, and we will have rest in our heart. Now, a Jew should get excited about that. But you also can get very excited about that. When you hear, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, that is what that means. No more restlessness. Or, or a final high point. When you hear, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, you should hear, no more sad endings. No more sad endings. Do you see what this covenant to David is rooted in? It's not really rooted in David's righteousness. It's rooted in God's faithfulness, God's promises, God's steadfast love. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Every story in the Old Testament, every king in the Old Testament, maybe had a good point, but they always had a sad ending. Look at the end of every single story. It's always sad. Even at the very end of David's life, it's sad. You can see the kingdom already splintering away. If you want to see real sadness, look at Solomon's end. It is miserable. Joshua ends by being shot by an arrow uh, by the Egyptians. That's a sad ending. Just when he was starting to get going, he gets shot. But with Jesus, his rule will be, will be the, the fulfillment of all of these promises. There will be no more sad endings with his reign. Uh, all of these other names, all of these other dynasties, all these other thrones had expirations. Not with Jesus. He will live forever. This is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus because why? He has a life that is indestructible, that rose from the dead, and he will reign forever. When you hear King of the Jews, even even if you are an Old Testament Jew, you should see this means no more sad endings. This is going to last forever. This is the one who's going to bring all of those promises to fruition. Now, a Jew should get excited about this. But I'd also say, you should also be eager to, to find Jesus as the King of the Jews as well. It means, it means there will be no more rust. It means there will be no more pain. It will be, there will be no more thieves. There will be no more evil. And it will never, ever, ever end. It will be tested, but it will never even be threatened. Because Jesus is on the throne. That's what it means when you hear the name Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, that, is, that is what Matthew is announcing when he says in that statement, that clear statement in his gospel, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Even we, Gentiles, outside of Israel can get excited about that. But that's also why Matthew is strange. Because when he says this, none of those things seem to be happening. Turn over to Matthew 27. Turn over to Matthew 27. Once again, this is, to, to all of my reading through Matthew, 
the clearest statement of Matthew's argument for what he's been saying. Now, it's not that, that Matthew's been unclear all the way up to this point. Matthew's been giving you proof and evidence and evidence after evidence and proof after proof of who Jesus is and even what Jesus says and what other people are saying about Jesus. But this is the clearest statement in the Gospel of Matthew about his point. And and watch this. Watch the context in which this statement is made. Verse 32, And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Notice all of the titles that Matthew packs in for who this Jesus is, right here at the climax of his gospel. He is the king of Jews in verse 37. He is the rebuilder of the temple in verse 40. He is the son of God in verse 40. He is the savior of others. No, they don't even deny it. In verse 42, in verse 42 also, he is the king of Israel. In verse 42, again, he trusts in God. He's a man after God's own heart. In verse 42, he desires God. He has a true relationship with God. In verse 43, he is called the Son of God. What's that? That's eight titles for Jesus, all compact together. That shows you that this is an important section. When Matthew's been driving at this argument the whole time, and, and now he makes it, this is the key section. This is explaining the kind of king he is. And the kind of kingdom... He will rule over. This is a kingdom that has eager expectations, but it is strange in how it comes, isn't it? Matter of fact, this is Matthew's purpose to show Jesus as the king, but it's also to explain what happens to the kingdom when his very own nation rejects him. So, if you're a Jew and you're reading that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, you're like, hey, Where's the kingdom? If there's no kingdom, then all of that Old Testament hope is out the window. And, and if you're like me, and you're like, well, where's the kingdom? Where are all those glorious, glorious truths and hopes that we are just talking about? All these no, no, no's. If, if this is it, that doesn't get me excited about Jesus as king. Not at all. But Matthew's purpose is to show you what happens to the king and the kingdom when his nation rejects him. 
Now, I want to kind of unpack what happens to the king and what happens to the kingdom next week. And I'm, I know I'm treading on very dangerous terrain here. And maybe I won't even record it for that reason, right? I, I have the audacity to preach a message overview the very same Sunday, our same pastor is starting his own message. I mean, it's, it's dangerous, I know. But I want to try it mostly because I love preparing myself for preaching. Don't you? I love reading where I'm going to be listening. Don't you? I love to be praying already, Lord, prepare my heart to understand these things, to have the eager expectations and desires, and and the the ability to do these things that I'm going to learn about. That's what I love to do. I love to prepare myself to hear God's Word. And actually, that's what I want for you as well. I want you guys to be ready to hear and to to be changed forever by the knowledge of Jesus as King. So that's what we're going to do. I've got a great way for you this next week to prepare yourself for next week's sermon. And I know this is going to be a surprise to all of you. This is going to be shocking when you see the size of these cards. But here's a plan. Hey, I, I broke Matthew up into six days. Now, if you want to, technically, Steve is not really preaching a message overview on Matthew next week. He's actually preaching a theology of Matthew next week. But then the following week, he's going to be preaching kind of a message overview of Matthew. So you could say, you know what, I'm going to do one of these every two days. You could do that if you wanted. Or you could say, man, tomorrow I'm waking up and I'm reading Matthew 1 through 6. And then on Tuesday, I'm waking up and I'm reading Matthew 7 through 11. And then Wednesday, 12 through 15. Thursday, 16 through 20. Friday, what day am I on? <laughs> 21 through 24. And then Saturday, Matthew 25 through 28. And actually, you know what? This should only take you about 20 to 25 minutes to do. Hey, I know you may be reading somewhere else, but wouldn't it be exciting, wouldn't it be exciting to prepare yourself for next week's message? And um, a series that will probably take a couple years, if we're being honest. We know how it goes, right? <laughs> and actually, I've got another bonus here. And maybe this, this bookmark isn't really that helpful. You could do this on your own. But maybe the back is more helpful. I've got some reading questions for you. It's always helpful for me when I'm reading a book of the Bible to have a question I'm trying to answer as I'm reading. So the questions I have here, and it would be helpful if you read with these questions in mind, was first off, why does Matthew write his gospel? I may have given that one away. Um, number two is how does Matthew demonstrate Jesus to be Israel's long expected king why thirdly doesn't God's kingdom come immediately upon Jesus' arrival and what happens to God's kingdom plan when the Jews reject their king believe it or not the answers are in the gospel of Matthew but you just have to read it and you can read it with these bookmarks Sounds right. I'm going to pass these around. Take one so that you will not be shame-stared by me. Uh, But you do not have to do it. But I'm just giving you this opportunity to prepare yourself for next week's message. Not necessarily my message, but the message that our pastor is going to start. As those are going around, um, I'm going to pray and close our time. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for all the glorious truths that that are built up throughout your word and all of the hope that can be ours in 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 jesus christ we thank you for all of the glorious glimpses that we get of him throughout the gospels and we we want to be prepared to hear about him as king 
in these next coming weeks, months, and years. And we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As